and the lives of your wives and your concubines, right? Because you love those who hate you. And, and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Okay, so, woo! Joab speaks some harsh words to David, right? Kind of, you know, snap out of it. What are you doing? You are defeating yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot, right? So the question is, is Joab justified in the way he speaks to David here? David is his king, he is his uncle, he is his elder, and on paper, David is his military leader. Um, so, did, and you know, questions, is, is Joab so harsh? Because Joab, of course, is the one who had Absalom killed, right? And it's just like, oh, it's gonna all get back pinned on me, right? Because I'm the one who, I was the hand that delivered it. Um, or is he loyal to the end and wanting to motivate David? You know, you're going to lose your whole kingdom, the whole thing you fought for, if you don't get out there and thank people for being on your side, right? Um, so, is, you know, is he loyal to the end and trying to say, David, put back on your royal robes while you have still people to rule over? Probably some of both. If, you know, we've seen Joab in action for many chapters now, and, and kind of like David, he can be a little slippery and a little wily and a little ruthless. So, um, so I, Joab probably had some mixed motives here, right? Probably a little self-protection and probably a little like, you know, his, his wagon is hitched to David's star. And if David goes down, he goes down, right? But come on, come on. We've been working on this. Um, so Joab, I would say, Joab is always on Joab's side first and foremost, right? He disposes, he disposes of his own rivals. Um, we're going to see how he disposes of another rival in chapter 20. Um, and eventually, he is going to uh, back out on David. We will see that later um, when David chooses one son to be king and Joab prefers another, right? But he has stuck to David up to this point, even when David gets wishy-washy. Um, and David, David has trusted Joab, right, knowing, ah, I can use this ruthlessness. When he wanted Uriah killed, so that he could marry Bathsheba, who did David enlist? Joab, right? He's like, well, ruthlessness has its purposes at times. If I want somebody killed, I know who can do it, right? Somebody who is loyal to me and someone who isn't sort of finicky about killing people. So, <clears throat> so he, and that's probably another reason why David is kind of mm -hmm, on Joab, right? Sometimes when we get people to do our dirty work, we like them less because they remind us of things we don't want to be reminded of, right? Um, our own shame can cause us to hate people who remind us of our shame. So all that to say is up to this point, Joab is on David's side because David's side coincides with Joab's side. But if we punish those that are on our side, they won't be on our side for very long. People can only take so much. This is what Joab is telling him. Um, it is true that David told his commanders in chapter 18 
deal gently with my boy Absalom for my sake. Remember? And it says, all the troops heard the king give the order about Absalom to all the officers. So you could say that David's kind of justified. Like, didn't I tell you not to hurt him? Why did nobody listen to me? Why did you kill him? But what would have happened if Joab had not killed Absalom? Um, this was a son who had openly rebelled against his father, against the monarchy, um, against the status quo, right? This son, it told us, was a magnet for malcontent in the kingdom, just like David was when uh, Saul was in power. Everyone who didn't like Saul came to David. Well, same thing, right? Everyone who was mm, not so happy with David was going to Absalom. Um, and where David had been unwilling to kill Saul, he had opportunities, if you remember. He would do little things like cut off a corner of the robe and things like that. But where David was unwilling, he said, this is the Lord's anointed, and I finally am not going to touch him, right? Um, and he resisted that temptation. Absalom has shown that he doesn't have those same scruples as his father, right? If Joab had not killed Absalom, I am betting Absalom would have continued to be a, a growing problem. So... And yet, and yet, right, David still loved the rebellious son who wanted him dead. Um, some part of David wanted to forgive Absalom and welcome him back, even if it didn't make any sense politically, right? Christian brought up the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 while I, while I writhed, thinking, oh no, I already wrote my talk and I was just talking about the prodigal son. Um, and she talked about how David's forgiveness fell short of the father's forgiveness in the prodigal son story. And that is absolutely true because, if anything, David is only able to forgive Absalom completely when Absalom is safely dead. Right? David, David is only able to forgive his son completely when his son is safely dead and can no longer do more things. Um, David is not alone in this situation. Uh, when we lose loved ones, we suddenly regret the wounds, the distance. We wish we could heal them, even though before the person was dead, we let those opportunities go by, right? Um, if we learn anything today, let it be that forgiveness and reconciliation should not wait. They should not wait. Um, we want to make that move. That way, when the other person is dead, we don't regret not doing what was in our power. Um, yesterday, it was time to move Gina and Rita again, and um, so I went along, Scott and I went over, and um, I went along because Rita, my mother-in-law, has always um, behaved better if I'm around. So she will lay into, she's at the stage in her disease where she will lay into people. And, um, but I had never witnessed it because she had never done it up to this point. So anyways, um, I was driving her from the one place to the new place, and uh, she's at a stage in her disease where, uh, <coughs> actually I hadn't seen this before, I had seen hints of it, but I hadn't seen this stage, where she was kind of in a loop. And the loop was, so Jean, long story, this is a long story, and you guys wanna get on the roller coaster with me? So Jean, had a second stroke, he's been moved to back to another place, he's having difficulties there because he's never been separated from Rita. She was having difficulties because she didn't know where the heck her husband had gone. Um, so her mind, of course, this is what our minds do, um, made up a story that would make sense to her for why he was not there anymore. And the story she has made up is, 
he's left her for another woman. He always wants, he, and Gene is 83, right? He's like, yeah, that Lothario, he's off with some honey bunny. But um, we, you may laugh at it. We're going to get to David and Abishad. But anyways, but Abishad is hired, right? At some point, you have to hire out. People don't just volunteer for this job. But um, anyways, so, and I tried everything. The drive was like a half hour. I tried everything. It's like, look at the beautiful dog with blooming. Do you like pink or white better? And that didn't go anywhere. And um, anyway, so we went on the loop of the story and the wrongs that had been done to her. And, and oh, this is where we think about broccoli. Um, and she got to the point where she said, she said, I just don't have any love left for him. And, and, um, and then she started crying. And so <clears throat> I, was, I was at a stoplight. And I said, I said, well, I don't know what to say. That is very frustrating, and it's very hard not to love people we have loved and, and to feel like they've betrayed us. And I said, I don't know what to do, but I'm a pastor's wife, so okay, let's pray. <laughs> so put my hand on her leg, praying at the stoplight. And, um, and she was quiet, and she listened, and we prayed, and, and lo, no miracle happened. After we got through the stoplight, amen, thank you, Lord Jesus, the loop started up again. But I thought, you know, and I told Scott and I told Jean later, I said, for the duration of the prayer, she listened, right? And so I tried to say things that I hoped would get into her head about, <clears throat> you know, Jesus, I know you love Rita so much, and this is a scary time, and... Sometimes it's hard to know what's going on, and it's hard to know who we can trust, but we can trust you, and blah, 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 blah. So I'm just hoping some of that got in there, and because um, I was reading this book, or right now we're really on a tangent, but this happened yesterday, so it's fresh. I was reading this book written by a lady who has Alzheimer's, and she was saying, and which is amazing in and of itself, but as you read the book, you begin to see your first, you're like, how can you write a book you have Alzheimer's? But then she begins to repeat herself a lot and things like that. And, and a, a sweet editor has gone in and said, as I said before, right, as we lead into part. But one of the points you really wanted to make is, you know, I'm still in there. I may not remember your name. I may not remember very much about you, but I'm still in there. And we can have a connection in the present moment. Never mind all that. So we can talk about pictures, la, 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 but connect with me in the present moment. So I'm like, Okay, by golly, I'm gonna connect him. So I'm like holding her hand and stuff. And Rita's like, Are you trying to smooth me over? She has these alarming moments of clarity. Because in fact, we were, because we were gonna move her that day. So I was trying to smooth her over. But, anyways, so she's like, And we still have spiritual sides to ourselves. So I was like, Dad, gun it, we're gonna pray, right? Even if I get nothing back, I'm gonna trust that lady in the book. She said it multiple times. She said it like eight times in the book, but it's got to be true, right? You're still in there. You still have a spiritual self. We can still connect in the present moment. So dog on it, that's what we're gonna do. So anyways, my point being, my point being is tell the people that you love that you love them. Tell them now, tell them constantly, because tomorrow you could get dementia or you could be hit by a self-driving car. You never know. And so tell them. Say it over and over and over again. And I want us to be the women with no regrets. We are the women with no regrets. And if the person is estranged from you and you still love them, tell them that. I still love you. We are estranged. I wish it wasn't that way. 
Boom. What do you have to regret? You told them you still love them, right? Amen. So that when they get dementia, doggone it, and they say, I have no love left for that person, you can say, I, I have said what I want to say. We still love you, you know? Feel how you want to feel. I love you. Okay. So, anyways, the point being, David waited too long because Absalom. He is only able completely to forgive Absalom when Absalom is safely dead, right? Only then does the man after God's own heart re-emerge. And only then can David become that loving father who gave a foolish son the freedom to do hurtful things that, um, and, and give him everything at the expense of the father, right? Um, only then can David welcome that son back, right? When he had his chance, Joab brought Absalom back. And for two years, Absalom sat outside the city, not being called back into his dad's presence, right? You're forgiven, kind of. You're forgiven, but, but don't come any close, right? And only after Absalom is dead, does David have this total breakdown? It's like, oh, why? Why didn't I forgive him all the way? Maybe I could have prevented all this if I had forgiven him all the way, if I had embraced him again. Okay. And I am so reminded that that story, David learns how to be that father in the parable when it's too late. Um, even Joab's bitter um, accusation, he says, you have shown love for those who hate you and hate for those who love you. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the older brother in the story, right? Like this kid, this kid, you know, he goes and does everything wrong and you still throw a party when he comes back, right? Joab sounds exactly like that. Right? When this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. Right? David, you don't know how to love. You love all the wrong ways. You love all the wrong directions. Right? But what does the father say in that parable? You know, he says, I've loved you too. I have loved you too. Right? He has learned how to love. I've loved you too. Um, so, one of the reasons God has always loved David is David is like God at his best self. Right? He is a prodigal lover like God. Um, he doesn't love perfectly. Only God can do that. Right? But when he loves, he really loves. And um, even when reason tells him it's hopeless. That is the tale of the first loss. Okay. Now we're going to go really fast through all the weird things in the middle. Um, it turns out in verses 10 and following that killing Absalom does not immediately heal the kingdom totally. Right? There were a bunch of people and tribes who peeled off to follow Absalom and they have to be lured back um, because they can't agree with themselves if they still want to be part of David's kingdom. This is uh, going on in verses 12 and following. 12 and following. 12. Oh, turn the page. 12. 12. Okay. <clears throat> you are my kinsmen. What? What? Uh, I don't know why I said 12. What? Oh, that is what I said. Okay. You are my kinsmen. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not my commander of my army, henceforth, in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Okay, that made no sense the way I put it in there. But the point was, there are these divisions. And so David is trying to bring the kingdom back together and calling the tribe, saying, you know what? I'm from the tribe of Judah. You're from the various tribes. But we are all 
still connected, right? Come back. Let's, let's be together. And you know what? I know you hate Joab, so I'm going to put Amasa in place ahead of him. Go back to that David family tree. If you remember, so David had these sisters, Abigail, first one, and Zariah. And Zariah was the one who gave him Abishai, who's dead, and Abihel, who's dead, and Joab, right? But Abigail, his other sister, had a son too, named Amasa. And this son, Amasa, has been the military commander for Absalom. So in other words, he was a rebel. He rebelled, and maybe part of the reason was he was jealous, like, why do my cousins get to be David's military leaders and I'm nobody, right? And Absalom says, come on over to me. We'll see if we can fix that. Um, so he says, okay, okay, okay. Let's do like a team of rivals thing. Everybody come back, and now I'm going to demote Joab, and Amasa is going to be my military commander. Um, so David grieves, and he's continuing kind of to do what Joab warned against, right? He's going to punish Joab, right? I'm just going to scapegoat Joab. And Joab, I'm so mad at you for killing Absalom, and now Amasa is going to be my guy. So um, even though Amasa had already betrayed him once, right? And so you can't help but hear what Joab says. You have shown love for those who hate you and hate for those who love you, right? So, but David thinks, well, if someone was part of the problem, I'm going to make him part of the solution, right? Or maybe, maybe, being David, he was also thinking, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, right? Um, a couple things to point out. So David's pendulum, after showing that he is capable of this prodigal love, after it's too late, um, it swings back in the human direction. He is mad at Joab, even though from a worldly perspective, Joab spoke political truth to him, right? And he fires him, and then he twists the knife and is like, oh yeah, your cousin is going to be my military guy now, right? And you can just see the flames coming out of Joab's ears. And this probably has something to do with why later he abandons David and goes with Adonijah instead of Solomon. Um, so chapters 19 and 20, they raise a lot of questions about loyalty. Who is loyal to us? How can we tell? Um, when people say they love us and they are loyal, how do we know if they're telling the truth? Um, when Joab killed Absalom against orders, David saw that as disloyalty, right? When David failed to separate his public and his private roles, Joab saw that as disloyalty. Disloyalty to the throne and to its responsibilities. And so David punishes Joab's perceived disloyalty by being disloyal back, right? He fires him, he replaces him with another possibly disloyal general. Okay. So the rest of 19 then becomes like a game show. And it's like, who is loyal to David? Who is telling the truth? Who is lying? The first contestant is Shimei. Shim, how do you say it, Kristen? Shimei. Thank you. Shimei, son of Jerah, who in uh, chapter 16, remember, he was the guy when David was fleeing Jerusalem. He was the guy who came out and like, threw rocks and threw names and Shimei. So, and they're like, oh, you want us to kill him? And David's like, no, maybe the Lord told him, right? Um, so, whoops, have you ever done that? Thrown rocks at somebody and then, then they have power over you? So, now David is back in power, so Shimei has to grovel and whimper to save his skin, right? And Abishai, oh, I'm sorry, I told, I told you Abishai was dead. He's not dead. There's Abishai. Abishai, like a true son of Zariah, says, ah, now we should kill him, right? Because this guy was disloyal, and now look how pathetic. Now he's like trying to get back in your good graces. And David's like, no, no. Now is the time for mercy, right? We want to show mercy. Though, as Kristen pointed out, David has not forgotten, and he is delaying 
judgment for a little later. He is going to get back to Shimeon. But for today, he's like, no, no, let's take everybody's loyalty. Okay. Contestant number two is Mephibosheth. So you remember loyal or disloyal? Ziba came along in chapter 16 and said, oh, Mephibosheth thought, David, that with you gone, he was going to get the throne back as the remaining son of Saul, right? Or the highest son of Saul. Um, and David said, oh, yeah, well, here, take everything I gave Mephibosheth. Now it's yours, Ziba. And now here comes Mephibosheth, right? He's like, no, no, Ziba was lying. Ziba was lying. Um, and I went into mourning. I was really bummed that you got driven out of the city. I went into mourning. And you can almost see David just kind of throw up his hands and be like, I don't know who's telling the truth. So he's like, okay, you guys just split the property, which makes no sense at all, right? One of them is telling the truth. One is a traitor. He's like, just divide it. It reminds me of Solomon, right? Remember with the baby? And the women are fighting, my baby, my baby. He's like, just cut the baby in two, right? But what does the real mother do? The real mother says, no, 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 no. She can have it, right? Because she's the real mother. You don't have your baby cut in two. Whereas the spiteful woman was like, yeah, that works for me. Just as long as she doesn't get it, right? And here we see, this is our biggest clue that it was Mephibosheth telling the truth. Mephibosheth says, I don't want the property. Just, he can have the property. I just wanted you to know that I did not betray you, right? Ding, 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 ding. Come on. Solomon knew. Solomon knew how to use that technique. But David's just like, all right, whatever. Moving on. Contestant number three is Barzillai, the Gileadite, right? Foreigner. Um, he's been loyal the whole time. He's been, he fed David and David's followers when they were in exile. And David, he kind of warms up some of his old spirit, right? He's like, hey, come eat at my table the rest of your life. Let me do a Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth and I, we, I don't know how to get You, come be my replacement guy at the table. And Bar's like, maybe he, he's a little smart. He's like, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'll send my son. I'm, no, I'm too old for that. Okay, that brings us to chapter 20. And we have a new threat to the kingdom, right? It's just like nonstop. Um, we, with some intertribal tension. Intertribal tension. Okay, oh, these are selected verses, so I'm going to read looking at my screen. Okay. No! Yes! Okay. No. No? Dang it, I have it. Oh, come back because I have pictures. Tell me. Is it back? No. He delayed, this is verse 
fire. He delayed beyond the set time which had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Beatrice, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself fortified cities and cause us trouble. Okay, so very interesting. This new commander he's put in place delays, right? Like, we don't, he doesn't say why he delays, but it could be he's not that interested in helping David, right? Maintain his kingdom. So David turns to the remaining son of Zariah, remaining nephew of that branch, and says, all right, you do it, right? But he knows when he does this that Abishai is probably going to turn to his brother Joab and say, Joab, you do it, right? You be the boss again, but David is too proud to say, Joab, my tail is between my legs. Please help me. My new guy betrayed me immediately. Could you please rescue me, right? So he doesn't. He doesn't the kind of um, pass away and say, Abishai, take over. Um, so yeah, kind of passive aggressive. Um, but he knows Joab will take over. And Joab, being Joab, being very ruthless, does it, right? Joab kills off Amasa, right? <laughs> no more rival commander, because that's what, that's, the Joab way of doing things. And, um, and then he resumed, he quells the threat, and he resumes his place as commander. So everything is kind of back to normal, right? And then we come to the, but David is remembering everything, and so is Joab, right? The water is flowing under the bridge, but everybody is keeping track of the buoys as it goes by. Okay, so now we come to the second tale of loss, for which I have fabulous pictures, which I will describe to you. Is your screen black? Yeah. Well, then re reboot it. I can. Yeah. Just turn it off. Just turn it off. Give it a minute. That might take a while. Um. Okay. My screen isn't black anymore. Four hours later, never mind. All right. So we come to chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, foreigners, right? Another people. Um, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to slay them in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, Oh, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? All right, well, what is it then? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them up before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. And the king said, I'll give them. Sounds like a great idea. Right? So that's what happens. Um, so now, very interesting thing about this uh, passage. Uh, some commentators will say, like, this passage is out of place. Right, suddenly we're in the fairy tale language again, which you remember I talked about earlier. Now we have this vagueness. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. We don't know exactly when it is, and it seems like when Saul's reign is very fresh in everyone's mind. So they're saying, you know, um, 
Maybe this chapter is misplaced. Maybe it comes a lot earlier after Saul has gone. Because otherwise, it's very strange, right? If it's here, it's strange. Because then you think, well, okay, if Saul's been dead for decades now, and then there's a three-year famine, why would that three-year famine be about Saul when it's been decades, right? So that makes no sense. So they're like, so maybe this comes earlier. But, you know, we don't know. Um, but in this chapter, we have that distant David again, right? We came from this very raw, very emotional David who was kind of in your face with his emotions. And now we have this very distant one again. Um, we're not sure what he's thinking all the time, right? There's just a, hey, that's a good idea. Let's kill seven sons of Saul, right? What's going on in there? What's happening? Um, so they like to stick it before, some scholars like to stick this chapter before the original Mephibosheth chapter. Right? And it's like, oh, that makes kind of literary sense, right? Because then you have seven sons of Saul die, and then David goes through this sort of thing with Rizpah, and then Mephibosheth comes, and he feels like, well, I didn't handle that first one very nicely, so maybe I'll do better with Mephibosheth. Then it's like, oh, I see, that would be a, a nicer story than where it is now. But it is where it is. So, okay. Um, and other scholars say, oh, you know, this is just one of the inserted stories you'll see in chapters 22 to 24 that just, like, wrap up all these other sources of stories from David's reign. So, like, where should we put this one? I don't know. Just throw it in there in chapter 21, right? Um, before we get back to the very intimate account of David's last days. So, whatever the case, um, where it is now, it forms a very interesting literary bookend with the death of Absalom and David's response in 19. We have this Tale of two losses, right? We have talked before about this Old Testament belief in causality, right? That doing something bad led to something bad happening to you, and so on. And that belief is the plot driver of this story. Um, whatever Saul did to the Gibeonites, and they say, oh, oh, he did all this stuff, but there isn't any record elsewhere in Samuel of what Saul had done, supposedly to the Gibeonites. Um, God got mad, and therefore he sent this famine. And the only way to lift the famine was to pay the blood guilt price. And since Saul did it, whatever it was, right, it's his bloodline that has to die. Here's a picture of the burgers of Calais by Auguste Rodin. Just um, <laughs> a picture. If you remember that story about the burgers of Calais, they're, they're being laid siege to. And, and they said, well, if you just send out the town leaders and we can kill them, we'll let the city go. And so the town leaders... Rodin does a very famous sculpture of them skulking along like, dang, right? This is leadership. <laughs> Off they go. Um, so, so, so he's like, uh, let's do a Burgers of Calais thing, right? Let's just kill Saul's sons and then everything's off the hook. Uh, verses 7 through 9. Oh, but the king spared, do I really want to read this now? But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The, daughter, uh, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. Don't you hate it when people in your own family pick the same name for their kids? I mean, this family has two Mephibosheths. <laughs> so one gets killed, one doesn't. Um, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, not to be confused with the other Barzillai, um, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay. Um, 
So we may gasp, though none of you did because you'd all done the reading. We may gasp at the awfulness of this story, and it is awful, um, but we haven't altogether lost this mindset, strangely. Um, if we experience a hardship in our life, probably not a three-year famine, but it might be an illness, a divorce, a death, a broken relationship, whatever. The one question we never fail to ask ourselves is, what did I do wrong, right? What have I done to deserve this? We still have this idea in our heads. This has happened, therefore, somebody did something, right? What did I do? What did I, what did I do to deserve this? Um, when Holly, our oldest, was having her out-of-control year, um, <laughs> senior year, I found myself reviewing every parenting failure, and it was a long tape, um, every parenting failure of the prior 17 years, right? Was she this bad because I hadn't hugged her enough? I remembered a time on my tape, right, where she bounced, bounced, hug, and, and you know, when you're just like, get off me, right? Just stop right now. And then I thought, was that it? Was that it? And therefore, she thought, oh yeah? You won't hug me when I want to hug? Come hither, look, and it says, 
Rizpa and Saul, their love almost destroyed a kingdom, right? And I was like, oh, I want to read that, but I couldn't find it. And it's not on Kindle. So, if you run across a copy and you're thinking, oh, what thank you gift would be fun to give Christina at the end of the year? Give me a copy of Rizpa, if you have it on your shelves. Um, anyhow, I wanted to show you the cover, because it was just wonderful, like the movie trailer we found. Um, okay, so, she's, we have seen a lot of women in David's story, right, in David's life. We have seen a lot of women who, whose powerless lives are ca caught up in this greater story. And we've seen poor, I continue to say poor, Scott, like, she was, yeah, and I'm like, I feel sorry for her. Michael, right, the first wife, the first wife, he's like, marry him, no, now you gotta go marry him, no, come back to him. And then, oh, you don't like me dancing like this, look at that, I'm gonna sleep with you again, right? I mean, poor Michael, I feel bad for her, she had a bad life. Um, there's poor Michael, there's poor Bathsheba, there you are happily married, taking a bath on a hot day, and next thing you know, your husband's murdered, right? Um, there's Tamar, there you are, making soup for your stupid brother who's sick and he rapes you, right? There, there are women in bad situations in these stories, and we can add Rizba to that list. And it's hard to say, like, if we had to take a poll, who do you think out of those women had it the worst? Um, it might be Rizba, it might be Rizba, right? She is one of Saul's former concubines. Let me show you a family tree of Saul, and you can see. Um, she's one of Saul's former concubines and mother to two of his sons, Harmony and Second Mephibosheth, or he could have been First Mephibosheth. We don't know. Um, and then there's poor Merab, a sister, uh, sorry, a sister of Jonathan and Michael, and a daughter of Saul. And she went and had five sons, and we can only hope that she is already dead by the time this happens, because otherwise she would be, right? This would kill you, you don't survive this. Um, so she has to cough up five sons, Rizba has to cough up two sons, and they get put to death, all to propitiate this blood guilt for Saul's unjust actions against the Gibeonites. Okay, we go to verse 10. Then Rizpa, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, where all these men had been killed. From the beginning of harvest, beginning of barley harvest, until rain fell upon them from the heavens, she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshem, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and he gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, where he's from, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded supplications for the land. Okay. So it is one thing for the Gibeonites to, to demand a sacrifice. It is another to, de uh, to deny the body's burial, right? Um, according to the law, you were supposed to bury the bodies, right? You don't just leave them there. Um, but for some reason, they were left there. And picture, picture. Rizba takes, this, takes on this monumental, arduous, smelly, thankless, disgusting task of keeping the vultures off the entire summer. The entire summer. Um, I don't know how you do this. I mean, oh my gosh, have you ever tried to keep a squirrel off your bird feet. I mean, it's just, animals are 
and they gang up on you. So anyway, somehow all summer she managed to do this. And the painting I had was, um, it shows all the men and they're hanging on crosses. And then there's Rizpa, you know, fighting off the vultures. It's interesting because um, I was reading this, maybe I won't tell you. Um, okay, so, and artists have always envisioned, artists have always envisioned um, the scene with deliberate echoes of the crucifixion, right? Um, when men, the men have been abused and betrayed and abandoned and killed, and it's the women who return to the scene, right? And so the, the painting had all the men and they were hanging on crosses and Rizba's there, kind of like the Marys at the foot of the cross, right? The women come back. Um, when David lost Absalom, he couldn't indulge his private feelings as a father because his role got in the way, as Joab pointed out. Um, he couldn't let his grief take over, right? Rizpah allowed her grief to take over extravagantly, right? This discarded concubine has more freedom to act how she wants to act than the king. Um, she can't, she's a woman. She can't go to war against David. She can't go to war against the Gibeonites. But all she has is her grief and dog on it. She's going to indulge her grief then, right? Um, and it is her grief and her perseverance and her devotion that turn out to have a power that maybe war doesn't have, right? They can compel a king to show belated mercy. It's interesting that David says, okay, you think seven sons will do it? Here they are, right? They get killed. But the famine does not lift until David buries Saul's sons, right? So if you accept the causality of this story, it means that David's mercy was also a necessary act to restore the nation. It was, God was not satisfied with the blood guilt being satisfied. There had to be this mercy afterwards, this good that came out of it. So David does the good, he brings the things back together. So that her powerlessness was not as powerless as she thought, right? Her grief and her perseverance and her devotion became a weapon in her hands. She used them. Okay, more war follows in the chapter. We're gonna stop here. Um, and in fact, I'm running over time, so I'm just going to end. This is what I like to think. I like to think about this story when I think about Rizpah. Um, in Luke, it says, this is Jesus now. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, wherever that is, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep, right? Then he came and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. 